have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. It's amazing how far water will travel once it enters someplace on the roof. It, it, it's always surprised me. It's rare that you find a leak exactly where a hole may be or where there's a bad shingle, for example. So my, my guess is if you continue to fight this and you know your basement is dry, uh, that you've got a, a, a problem elsewhere. It's either from a plumbing line or it's coming from that roof. And since you know you have some roof problems, I'd venture to say when you re-roof that house, you're going to find the source and you're going to eliminate this. Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jabrit along with Ken the Contractor. And each week, Ken the Contractor is right here answering the questions that are important for you, today's homeowner. If you have a question for Ken, the number to dial is 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. Water heaters are one of the most energy-consuming devices in our homes. And I have multiple questions as we go from month to month regarding water heaters, the types, and the efficiency, and things we can do to make them more efficient. Or frankly, do I even need this typical water heater? Now, ordinarily, the water heater in most homes across this country is fueled by either electricity or by gas. There are certainly some that are fueled by solar energy. But the water heater is providing what we would refer to as a constant standby heat. And that means it is consuming energy 24-7, 365 days a year because it's there when we need it. All you want to do is turn the faucet on and have that hot water come out of the shower, the kitchen sink, whatever it may be. And this makes this very energy inefficient because we are asking it to be in a constant standby mode. And that doesn't mean that it's consuming electricity or burning gas every minute. And they are more energy efficient today than they were 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. But the point is that fuel source is always needed and it's keeping that water at a temperature that you're comfortable with on a regular basis. So the industry years ago developed what we've all come to know or refer to as tankless water heaters as an alternative. And the questions that I get is, is this a better use for me or is this a better alternative than using the traditional tank water heater? Well, there are both positives and negatives when we look at these and there are different types or different uses. Now, not unlike a conventional water heater that may go up to 199,000 BTUs, it may be 75 gallons. It may come down to be a little three gallon or a gallon and a half that fits under a sink for a point of use. Those are available in traditional water heaters as well. But on the tankless side, they've tried to match that saying, is there a place that we can use a tankless water heater? whether it's a point of use, perhaps just a remote hand sink in a bathroom somewhere, very common to see them in office buildings as well, or in providing whole house hot water, meaning that it's a larger unit, it has to produce heat on a more rapid basis, and it has to respond to those needs of turning showers on or different bathrooms at the same time the washing machine's on, the dishwasher just kicked in, and you're putting hot water in the kitchen sink. So they're designed to look at demands. And all of these need to be considered in many ways the same way that we consider what size traditional hot water heater goes in our home. Now, there are really two types of tankless heaters, and I just described them in general, but one is considered a whole house, meaning it's sized to handle everything in your house. The other is a point of use. And again, I just referenced that too, because if you have a remote bathroom, this is ideal if you've just put an addition on. You've built, say, a half bath, or even if you've built 
uh, bathroom that has the traditional lavatory and tub or tub shower in it, and you're 80 feet away from the hot water heater, meaning you're going to run this for a long period of time before you even get hot water, so you're wasting water. A point-of-use tankless water heater can be what you need to resolve that problem and to be more energy efficient. It goes in the bathroom. You tie the cold water line into it. It produces hot water only on demand. There's no standing pilot light. There's no constant use of electricity. And when you need hot water, it's there. When you don't, it's not consuming any energy. And that's the beauty of this. So a tankless water heater can certainly be ideal in that circumstance. It can also be ideal for your entire house but it needs to be sized for demand. You can't go out and simply look at the price point and say that, hey, this one's only $320, I'll put this in, when it may be a point-of-use water heater. You may find that in order to put in what you need for your whole house, you may have to spend $1,000, and that's one of the drawbacks we're going to talk about here in just a few moments. So the tankless water heaters certainly come in different styles for different uses. But tankless water heaters never run out of water. That's certainly one of the positives. Many of the tankless water heaters today will last 10, 15, 20 years, and you're going to find different warranties depending on the manufacturer. Also, these tankless water heaters can be positioned in places that you traditionally cannot install a normal upright electric or gas-powered hot water heater. So if you have tight spaces, these heaters can be installed on interior walls. They can be installed under cabinets. They can be installed in closets. Some can even be installed outdoors. They're made for exterior use or they're weather tight. And, of course, you have to use anti-freezing kits if you live in a colder environment. But you have a lot more flexibility in where you place these than you do with the traditional water heater. Now, probably one of the biggest positives of this is the amount of energy that you will actually save. And people across this country in studies are seeing that they're saving anywhere from 20 to 35% on their current heating bill. That's pretty substantial, 20 to 35%. The electric bill, of course, goes down. The gas bill goes down. Greenhouse gases are reduced. So you're doing your part for the environment. This is a green way to heat your hot water. And frankly, you don't have to worry about a tank rupturing. Now, you still have water lines to it. Don't want to be confused by that. There's still water lines to it. But some of you have said, yeah, I've had a hot water heater tank rupture and had a flood. You don't have that with a tankless water heater because there is no tank or reservoir of any size in it. Now, there are some negatives, and I have to touch on these for those of you that constantly ask me about this, that the tankless systems are significantly more expensive than a tank water heater on the front side. In many cases, it can be up to three times, maybe a little more, but traditionally up to three times the cost of a standard tank water heater. Also, if the home isn't equipped with a large enough gas line or supply for your heater, you may need to install a larger gas line. You may have to upgrade the electrical line. If you're changing this out from a regular hot water heater with an electrical feed, you may even have to upgrade your electrical service. If it's not large enough and you've gone from gas to an electric on-demand water heater. So these are some things you have to take a hard look at before you make this decision. And also, in order to properly vent propane or natural gas-fired uh, on-demand units, you'll need to purchase what can be some fairly expensive vent piping and other items that go with that in order to get it vented in some wall penetrations or roof penetrations. So if you're thinking about going from a tank to a tankless water heater, I want you to be aware of not only the positives, but I also want you to be aware of some of the negatives that go with that. Do your homework, and by all means, have whatever you're looking to do engineered to fit your home, to fit your lifestyle, because if you don't, 
you're going to be absolutely miserable. You're going to be very uncomfortable with it. You're not going to have the hot water that you need, and you're going to say, this thing just doesn't work. Talk this over with your family, with your spouse, because it is different, and it functions a little different than what you are typically aware of, and I don't want you to be disappointed. It can be a money saver, not on the front side, but on month to month, and it can also be a space saver, and certainly it can help you when it comes time to remodel and put on plumbing fixtures, bathrooms that are remote from the main hot water heater. Lastly, I want you to check with your state and with the federal government for current tax credits and or rebates that are available for this energy-efficient means of heating hot water for your home. Very good. And coming up on this edition of Ken the Contractor, Ken will be answering your questions next. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. Ken the Contractor is here each week answering the questions that are important to you. Today's homeowner, you can reach Ken by giving him a call at 800-614-2975 or you can email him a question to our website, kenthecontractor.com. Well, it looks like Charles in Greenville, South Carolina has an interesting question, one that many of us have probably uh, tried to tackle in years past. He says, I want to pour a concrete floor for a new garden shed. He said, however, someday I may want to bring water into the building. Is it necessary to install plumbing connections in the floor, or can a water line be added afterward through the walls in a way that it doesn't invite frozen pipes? Very good question, because, Charles, for many listeners, they live in parts of the country where it gets much colder than it does in your region during the winter, although I know you have freezing temperatures and you have to protect the pipes there as well. I want to address this in two ways. First off, if you're installing a shed or storage building on a slab, you need to do two things. One, check with your zoning department to be sure that where you want to place it meets zoning requirements and setbacks from adjoining property lines. And two, you need to determine if the building department requires a permit. Because this is a storage shed, in some parts of the country, No building permit is required as long as there's no electricity and no water involved in it or it does not exceed a certain square footage. In other regions, you're going to find that any one of these come into play. But in many cases, if you introduce water or electric in any fashion, even if it's just putting a switch and a light or just a keyless fixture inside there and maybe an outlet to plug in a a power saw or something, that you're going to have to have a full building permit because it's beyond just an ordinary storage shed, and now you're making it a useful or a workplace-type building. So you need to check with your local zoning and building department on both of those criteria. Now, assuming that you have no issue with those when you talk about pouring the slab and installing water, if you have some idea of where you want to install uh, this sink or if it's just a hose bib for water hose connection at a later date, and you want to come up under the slab and, and rough it in, then I always recommend that you do it in advance because you've thought through this and you know where this is going, meaning that you bring the water line up through the floor, you stub it out, you put a cap on the outside, you have no connection at this point. But what that does is says your building is ready to adapt and receive this water at a later date. You bring the water line up to the building, you continue the pipe distribution on through the inside, and then you've met your final desired purpose as far as the water distribution is concerned if this is something you're saying i don't want to do that right now but you have the ability to run just say a sleeve through there a pvc sleeve under the floor and you're going to use a a plastic water line at some point in the future a flexible line that's another easy way to accomplish it 
but you're very astute to pay attention to frozen lines because many of us don't think about this in outbuildings around our property. We do within our home. But the fact that you are uh, looking to bring water in, I want you to be sure that you either have a sleeve installed or you do a rough-in on the front side and that you have it within an insulated area. Now, again, because you do have winters in the Greenville area where you have days and nights, especially below freezing, you need to think about a heat source in there or the ability to turn that water off from its temperature-controlled distribution point, meaning if it's within basement of your house and you're routing it to the outside, you want an inside shutoff valve so you don't have to worry about that line freezing even the hose bib in the winter. Because unless you heat the inside of the shed, the chances are that at some point it may be cold enough for you or for people following these same instructions in colder climate for that line to freeze and then to ruin everything that you have in there and to create a huge water bill, especially if you're not at home. So an extremely good question. It's not one that all of us deal with, but a lot of people think about it when it comes time to put a shed in. We appreciate your writing, and thanks again for listening to us on WRIX 103.1 in Anderson, South Carolina. Let's go to the phones, and it's Mike who joins us right now. Hi, Mike. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Okay, that's fine. My question is on drainage. Uh, I have a machine-building shed that was built uh, below grade uh, to the north of the building. Uh, I have a flat area about five to six feet and then a pretty uh, uh, high bank that's about uh, six foot high. You correct me if I'm wrong. What I was going to do is line that with uh, riprap rock like the state does on the highways and then at the bottom come up with uh, some railroad ties just a foot or two high. And then behind that, I was going to lay some of this black corrugated pipe for drainage away uh, from the bank that would collect the runoff. My question is, are there different types of pipes that are available? Uh, the black corrugated pipe with holes all the way around or the leach pipe just holes on the top. I didn't want to trap water at the bottom. Which direction should I go? Well, I'd be using a perforated pipe on all sides, whether it has the slots or it has the holes, and you want to be sure you've got a fabric over it so you don't it doesn't silt in over time. But what you're trying to do first is collect the water, and if there's excessive water, then it's going to convey, it's going to move through that pipe because that's the path of least resistance. Even with collection holes in it, it will still move through that pipe. And if there's minimal water, then it's, it's going to work its way into it, and you're not going to have the pressure on the other side that wants to move downstream or work up against this foundation wall. And that's the principle behind these footing drains or basement drains that are installed. Typically, you'll see a fully perforated pipe. And folks have asked me, well, how does that work? If you've got a pipe full of holes, how's the water going anywhere? Well, if there's enough volume of water, it's still going to flow through that. These holes, these slots are fairly small, but they're designed to collect still a volume of water. And if you've got a break in this line, if you can imagine a water hose with a hole in the hose, it may still be connected. You're not going to get that full volume flowing out the discharge side of it. It's going to stop it. It's right there with all the pressure. It's going to work its way through this hole. And so, so you're, you're trying to relieve the pressure so that it cannot. There's no way pressure can build up against your foundation wall. That water is relieved and will come back into this pipe and gradually dissipate, work its way into the drainage system. Right. Well, in this case now, of course, the this pipe, and I've already had foundation uh, drainage around the foundation, uh, this is a flat area that's about six foot away from the building at the foot of a of a six foot bank. Right. That I'm trying to control erosion and water coming off of that bank to divert it around the building instead of coming up against the building. So you, what you're saying is 
you would recommend a pipe with a hose all the way around it, and would you put a uh, gravel layer naturally below and above it? Yes, I would. And what you're doing is creating, a, you're doing the same thing that you have done for your foundation. You're trying to reduce the amount of water flow and pressure that moves laterally in that ground up against your existing building. You're just intercepting it several feet away from the building. Right. And so since you have much more flow, sheet flow coming off the side of this hill, you're going to pick that water up. You're going to create a path of least resistance, essentially a French drain. And right. it's going to collect in that pipe, and it will move laterally, or it will move around your structure if that's how you move it. It's it's no different. You could do the same thing by simply constructing an earthen swale, not putting the pipe or stone in, and a swale being a ditch of sorts to collect the water and convey it around your structure. That doesn't mean you've eliminated all the water in that six or eight foot area because you're not. You're never going to get rid of that water, but you've reduced the large volume and you're reducing the pressure in that soil, the water within that soil, so it doesn't work against that foundation quite as much. Yeah, I'm saying some, some people just have suggested that I only use the pipe with the drains, the holes on the top. Well, then what you're missing then is you're only collecting the immediate surface runoff. Any water that gets into the ground up on that hillside that's moving horizontally or laterally below grade is not being collected. Yeah, I would be trapping that water. Yes. And that's the reason I would I would be using a perforated pipe all the way around because you're dealing with large volumes of water coming off this hillside. It's going right. to get in that pipe and it's going to move around. And, get, and you and use a sock material. I would use a sock material or some type of a fabric that wraps it so it can't silt in. I see. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call. We appreciate you listening. Thank you, Mike. We've got to take a quick break. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. Ken the Contractor is here each week to answer the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email him questions at our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Time now for today's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and, of course, save you money. Joining us now is Tom Little. Tom is vice president of SmartVent. This is not new to you because I've talked about SmartVent before. Tom's been on the show with me, and he's back, and we're going to talk about some new things and some information you need to know regarding FEMA and ways of saving some dollars on your insurance, your flood insurance, as you roll through year after year. Tom, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on again, Ken. Certainly glad you can be with us. Now, I, I, for those that did not hear your prior segment, I want you to back up and explain a little bit about who and what SmartVent is, how long they've been around, and what you're making. Absolutely. So SmartVent is a uh, manufacturer of a certified flood vent system that goes into a garage or crawl space that is enclosed below the base flood elevation. So we're talking about uh, FEMA map floodplains, and the objective of the, uh, the vent system is to actually relieve pressure, floodwater pressure, off of foundation walls below that floodplain level and allow it to flow in and flow out to protect the foundation from collapsing during a flood event. All right, now, for those of you that can't visualize this, essentially, if you're in a floodplain and that water comes up out of its banks, it starts moving towards the house, you have unequal pressure. You've got a crawl space that's three feet deep. You've got water rising, so you've got two feet of water pressure on the outside. 
You've got stacked block walls, unreinforced in most, cr- most crawl spaces. So that water pressure is just going to push that wall in. Once that wall collapses, your house comes down. Absolutely. You know, and a, uh, a structurally sound home starts with a solid foundation. One foot of head pressure, hydrostatic pressure up against the foundation wall is enough to cause collapse and structural damage. Our flood venting system the, meets all the building code requirements and FEMA regulations in that it's a bidirectional relief for that uh, water pressure on it. All we're doing is, if you can picture it, a vent frame inside that CMU block, and inside that frame is a door that has special floats, patented floats, that lock the flood door in place. So on a normal basis, the vent is in the uh, closed position, and we offer models that offer air ventilation, and then we have insulated versions. But for the flood venting feature, there's two floats that lock the vent door in place. As water rises up around the foundation, these floats lift with buoyancy unhinges the flood door and allows the water to flow in and, most importantly, flow back out. Flood vents always need to be bidirectional, and they need to operate without human intervention. We're talking about a passive solution because if you're not home and your house gets flooded, this is going to be automatic protection for that foundation. So there's no electricity to this. There's no solar cell. There's no battery. It's install, and don't worry about it. If you're away from home, out of the country, whatever, you happen to have rising water, this may save your entire home. Absolutely. It's the set it and forget it concept. So once they're installed, your, your foundation is then protected. To tie in the flood insurance savings aspect of that, being that you have a property in a FEMA floodplain, your lender is going to require you to have flood insurance. To receive a favorable rate on flood insurance, you need to be in compliance with the regulations. And one of the main requirements for that crawl space and that garage below the floodplain level is to have adequate and compliant flood vents to relieve this pressure, therefore you reduce the risk on your property and you're rewarded with a lower flood insurance premium. We're speaking with Tom Little. Tom is the vice president of SmartVent. Now, Tom, you're talking about the flood insurance. There are some changes that are taking place that have been for a while and will continue on FEMA's part. So there may be people listening to us now say, you know, no big deal for me. I don't live in a floodplain, but, you know, a floodplain may be coming sometime soon because of the rewriting of these maps. Are you seeing this move substantially across the country? You're seeing more and more people now placed in a floodplain? Absolutely, absolutely. So the NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program, which is mandated by FEMA, just went through an extremely major reform. Hurricane Katrina kind of started this whole process because the uh, account for the flood insurance program was tapped out due to that storm with all the claims. Since Katrina, there's been a lot of other hurricanes that have hit, so they've decided that we need to reform this program, and they are increasing rates. They are updating floodplain maps. So properties, like you just said, that were built, wasn't in a floodplain, are now being rezoned into a flood area, which again, triggers the lender to require that property owner to have flood insurance. With increasing rates, uh, one way to actually reduce your rates is to contact your insurance agent or reach out to us over at SmartVent, and um, we'll work with you on this. And you can, most of the time, reduce your flood insurance rate if you have a cross-spacing garage by retrofitting in compliant flood vents. On average, we save a homeowner about 83% on their flood insurance when they retrofit in compliant flood vents. So it's easy to do the math, but those of you paying $500, $1,000, 83% savings is huge. And these vents typically replace the standard vent in block foundations that are 8 by 16. 
and you, I guess you have some other options, but for people saying, well, I don't want to have to hire a mason and go out and knock block out and do other things, it's a pretty simple retrofit, is it not? It's an extremely simple retrofit, especially like you just said, with an air vent already in an existing foundation, CMU foundation. That's a rough opening. You remove that vent out. Somebody that uh, is, is handy enough can certainly do it on their own. If they didn't feel comfortable with, with working within their foundation, we have authorized installers who are licensed and insured and trained to do this type of work all across the country who can come in and, uh, and, and give a quote on this type of work and installing the product. Most importantly, what we do is the added value service of our group is we'll work with you to evaluate your home to see if floodments will actually help to reduce your flood insurance premium before you spend any money. What we request is a copy of an elevation certificate, and every home in a floodplain has a copy of this document. And just by reading this document, we can get a visual of the layout of your home and tell really quickly if flood vents are going to actually help to reduce the risk on your property. And this is a free property evaluation that you offer. If people can provide you with enough information, you will tell them in advance that, hey, we can help you or no, you really don't need this. Yes, yes, absolutely. So if you went to our website, www.smartvent.com, you can click on Contact Us page. Our toll-free number is on there, 877-441-8368. Somebody will pick up the phone Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 Eastern time. They're a certified floodplain manager, so they'll be able to technically help you out with your project. You send over a uh, fax copy of your elevation certificate, or you can email it to info at smartvent.com. And again, this is all on the website, but we'll be able to evaluate it in five minutes, pick up the phone, call you, and let you know if we're able to help you out. We've been speaking with Tom Little with SmartVent. If you live in a floodplain or you know that FEMA's adjusting the floodplain maps in your region, you're going to find that insurance is going to skyrocket as far as the flood portion goes. Tom certainly can help them out. So I want all of you to pay a little bit of attention to this. This is the kind of thing that we talk about frequently on this program. We're about saving money, doing things better, and in this case, you have opportunity to save money But as I said at the opening, maybe save your house. Tom, we thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having us on, Ken. Appreciate it. That's this week's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts that he interviews during his many travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and, of course, save you money. Don't forget, if you're looking for home improvement information this very weekend, don't forget to check out our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. There's a lot of valuable home improvement information there and a lot of detailed information about the things that we talk about quite often on the program. And while you're there, you can also check out a podcast of a recent program if you happen to miss it. It's all available online at KenTheContractor.com. You can also friend us on Facebook at KenTheContractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Do you have a question for Ken? You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, and we are here every week at this time answering the questions about your home inside or out. You can reach Ken by emailing him questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com, or you can also give us a call at 800-614-2975. Here's Lois with us right now. Hi, Lois. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi. I have a question. We built a home 20 years ago and thought we had the, were putting in the best windows at that time, and they were Anderson. But ever since we've had leaking of air around and under the window, I'm sure it was an installation issue. Is there anything we can do at this point? 
As far as the manufacturer is concerned, is, is that your question, or in terms of just taking care of the air infiltration problem? Just taking care of the air leaking in. Okay. Out. Are these double-hung, single-hung, awning-type windows? What type are they? Do you have a sash that raises from the bottom up? We do. Okay. So you have at least a single hung. It, it may, if, the, if the upper sash comes down, then it's considered a double hung. They can come down. Okay. Well, what I would suggest to you, because it's it's long out of warranty, you may have right. had a glass warranty that extended up to about 20 years on the, the, the double pane glass, assuming that's what they are. No, they're not double pane. Okay. Single pane. What I would recommend is you contact someone that is an authorized representative to sell and install Anderson windows. Now, you mentioned Anderson by name. They've got a good reputation in the industry. There are many other manufacturers that likewise have a good reputation, but there can be issues with any manufacturer, regardless of how good they are, right. with with a manufacturing problem there, as you say, can also be an install problem. And the reason I suggest you contact someone locally in your area that's authorized as both sales and install for Anderson is because they're going to be trained in dealing not only with the proper install of the windows, but also the maintenance of the windows. They're going to have access to components that a lot of people will not. If you need new weather stripping, if there happened to be an issue with one of the jam tracks in there, there was a problem maybe on those windows they had a felt trim around the sash or a seal that was never installed correctly. They're going to have access to those small components that someone else would say, oh, you have to replace the window or replace the sash, when really all you need to do is replace a weather stripping element. And I think that would be your best bet. That's where I would be going at this point. And sometimes it's as simple as a lock not working correctly to adequately seal that. There are also neoprene strips at the top of most of these windows that seal them in place. Some will have an interconnecting sort of a U-shaped vinyl fin where they lock, and I have seen issues with that. So the problem may be relatively minor, and it's good that you paid attention to it because you're consuming excess energy. Right. But that would be my recommendation to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the call. We appreciate it, Lois. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975, or you can drop him an email at kenthecontractor.com. Time now for our App of the Week. For those of you that are do-it-yourselfers, like doing woodwork especially around the house, and you said, I'd like to install crown molding in this room or perhaps several rooms in the home, but, you know, I'm not sure I know how to miter those corners. I've got an app for you this week. When you look at crown molding, it looks great in any home. But for most of us, we've not thought about what goes into just mitering those corners to make them look as nice and professional as they do in most cases. To begin with, it's a compound miter. You're transitioning from a vertical to a horizontal surface. You also have crown molding that it is an additional angle because it may be coming forward on that horizontal surface, the ceiling, two, three, four inches, depending on the size of that crown molding. And you're trying to miter the two pieces that come together inside this 90-degree corner. So it is somewhat complex. However, there's a very easy way to do it. First, if you have a compound miter saw, you're going to find that that solves all your problems in one cut. And that's because this saw is designed for just that, for compound miters. But I want to tell you a little more. You still have to know how to set this. You have to know what you're dealing with. And I want to give you an app this week that will solve all your problems, especially if you're ready to undertake this throughout your entire home. And it's called Crown Molding Angle Finder. Pretty simple, isn't it? It calculates both the miter and the bevel angles for crown molding. And this is crown molding of any size, so you don't have to worry about whether it's 2, 3, 5, 6, 8 inch. It doesn't matter. Crown molding angle finder. 
As I said, you put in various information from the particular wall that you're working on, and then it will tell you exactly how to set the miter saw, and you move forward from there. You cut it one time, that's the end of it. You install it. You eliminate the waste. You eliminate the heartaches and the issues you have of saying, why can't I figure this out? And I've seen a lot of people, including carpenters in the field who have never done crown molding, say, this is a little more difficult than it looks. So anyway, I want you to look this up. If you're interested, Crown Molding Angle Finder, you'll find the link on my website, KenTheContractor.com. This, by the way, is one of those things that is not completely free, but it's pretty inexpensive. Costs you all of 99 cents. Crown Molding Angle Finder, that's our app of the week. And speaking of the website, KenTheContractor.com, let's get another email from the website. Rita in Clarksville, Indiana, has an email question that many of you may have had to deal with at some time in your home owning, buying, or selling career. I know I certainly have. She says, we're leasing a home with an option to buy. We've been offered our choice of a guaranteed price after two years or a right of first refusal at fair market value. How do you determine the fair market value? Does this just mean that the value shown in a new appraisal or match the best offer? said, we certainly don't intend to live in the house while it's on the market if it comes to that, but I need some advice on how we determine fair market value. Well, Rita, I appreciate that question. And I want to tell you, the answer is not simple, and it may vary a little bit from one part of the country to the other. But I'm going to give you some basic guidelines having been involved in this. First and foremost, you and the seller have to come to terms with how you're going to arrive at the fair market value. And for me, the easiest way has always been for buyer and seller to agree, regardless of which hat I'm wearing in that transaction, to obtain three appraisals for the property in question. I would select one. The other party would select one that would be our own unique appraisal company. And then the two of us would have to agree on a third company together. We would take those numbers and we would see where the averages fall. We'd see the look at the high, low. We would read them in some detail and see if there were any discrepancies from one to the other. And we would arrive, frankly, among ourselves at a fair market price. It's difficult to say that just because the house next door sold at $250,000 means that your house is worth two fifty. It may be worth two seventy-five. It may be worth two twenty-five because there are some things that are very unique as you move from one home to the other. Sometimes it's simply the location of the house within the subdivision or on acreage that makes a huge difference. Some of the amenities, the small items, the big items can make a big difference. The age of the home, all of those things play an important role in establishing fair market value. But I'll tell you one quick and simple way that you can obtain this without getting into all of the detail. It may not be a way for you to come to terms with it between buyer and seller, but it's going to give you a pretty good indicator. And that is to do a survey of homes sold in your immediate area. You can do this by talking to a number of real estate companies. You can look most of this information up online. You can also spend time with your local realtor or realtors and ask them to do an appraisal. They're always interested in putting the house on the market for sale for both buyers and sellers. However, I would tell you that the fact that you're talking about dealing directly with this seller on your own, you may have a little difficulty getting a realtor involved because they're not going to see the opportunity to sign a contract, a listing agreement, or a sales contract at some point in the future. So if you discount that and you say, I really don't have realtors as a resource, then go to the appraisers that I talked to you about a moment ago. You and the seller arrive at a price you can agree to and go forward from there. Good luck with your house buying. And we appreciate you listening to us on WNDA 1570 AM. And thanks for your email. 
And that'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor for Ken Patterson. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor for Ken Patterson. Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.